There we go. Thank you, prayer team. Appreciate that. Uh, just to kind of build on that a little bit, I, I didn't have this plan, but um, find something. Um, my wife will tell you that I'm not a very good faster. I'm not a very good giving something up. Um, my daughter, for the entire 2022, gave up pop, 80, gave up pop all year. There were many, many days that we were at fast food restaurants or at a drive-thru. Avi, what do you want to drink? You want a Coke? And she's like, Dad, I'm not drinking pop. And she probably said that to me at least two dozen times. Um, but social media, pop, food, whatever it may be, uh, just a season to enter into prayer. Additionally, church, we want to kind of highlight up on the board, Advent Conspiracy, for those of you who may not know, every Christmas we turn Christmas upside down, hence the tree that is upside down. Um, essentially with that, we want to give less and give more to God. We set a, a goal of $17,000 at the beginning of our Advent conspiracy, and there's our final total, almost $22,000, church, way to go. That is awesome. So the three initiatives that we took on, ECMI, Ukraine, which is a missions organization that is ministering to the people of Ukraine, the rice packing, which we will be doing the rice packing here in our sanctuary in February. There will be more information about that, but we're going to pack thousands and thousands of meals that we will send to the people of Ukraine. And lastly, at a room, which is for young ladies in Kenya, when they become of age, they are kicked out of their home. Um, this is a way to give them some stability, some safety uh, at an age that they desperately need it. Um, so way to go, church. Um, that is awesome to hear. For those of you who don't know, I am not Pastor John. Um, I am Scott Mosebrook. Uh, I'm a member of our church's lead team, um, and I am just somebody who loves Jesus, and I'm here to share what God has laid on my heart. Um, there is just something about the new year, and I know for some of you, today is a hard day. Um, I am not an Ohio State fan. Please don't throw anything at me. However, I did watch the game. Uh, I turned it off shortly after the second half because I needed to go to bed so that I could be fresh for this. They were up when I went to bed. I, I slept very well except at midnight. It must have been the neighbors set off fireworks. It scared me to death. Um, luckily, Terry was still downstairs with the kids watching the ball drop because I'm pretty sure I was flailing my arms in fear. Um, but the new year provides great opportunity for perhaps making some new choices, changing perhaps patterns that we don't like. Maybe it's losing a few pounds or getting to the gym. I wanted to spend my sermon kind of bridging the gap between Pastor John's last sermon and what we're going to be talking about in a few weeks. And during Pastor John's sermon, he talked about this manger more importantly, what, goes in that, what was in that manger. He talked about how a baby changes everything. Uh, I remember 16 years ago when we had, almost 16 years ago, 15 and a half, when we had Avi, and people told me babies change everything. Boy, they do change everything. And so throughout John's sermon series, I was thinking about that. Why is that one baby, two, little more than 2,000 years ago, was born, has probably made one of the greatest, not probably, has made the greatest impact on our world. And that is because what Jesus represented. You see, Jesus represents truth. 
Philosophers have sought truth throughout the ages, seeking to know what truth is. And here, truth came in the form of a baby, and in a few months, when the stages change, there will be a cross back up here. That little baby hung on a cross for you and me because he represented truth. This morning, I'm going to propose something that can have a life-changing impact on our lives. It's going to impact people around you. I'm going to challenge you to think about how your faith impacts all areas of your life. I'm going to encourage you to document that. I'm going to ask you to seek truth with a capital T and push aside the myth of individual truths, lowercase t. Now, I think every time I preach, and I apologize for this, but I'm going to, I'm going to give them mad props, I talk about my parents. They have had a massive impact on my life. In fact, when I was only a few weeks old, my dad graduated from Grace Seminary in Indiana. And in, somewhere in my parents' photo albums, there is a picture of their young son, Scott, in a cap from my dad's graduation. And my dad served as a pastor at the church I grew up for for 25 years. Also, you know, to give a little shout out because my parents may be watching or will watch this, dad retired this week, 73 years old. He finally retired and we're excited for him um, for that part of his life coming to a close. He can kind of slow down a little bit, spend some time with my mom. But... My faith grew because of my parents, because of their guidance. The church that I grew up in was a huge supporter of missions. Um, I remember there was a picture of the, or of the world, and on the wor all over the world there were pins of missionaries that we supported, missionaries in places like Haiti and Brazil and Japan and countries throughout Europe. And one of my favorite things was these missionaries would go on furlough. Furlough is basically a missionary. They're in the field for a few years, and they need to come back, and they need to gain support to continue their ministry. They share with the churches that currently support them. They additionally reach out to new churches. Now, for me, it was totally selfish because when they would come back, that most of them had kids, which meant for about a week, we got to hang out with kids. I remember one couple... Um, they were in Japan, and what was popular in Japan were American blue jeans. So I got to go to the mall and buy lots and lots and lots of blue jeans. I mean, we're talking hundreds of pairs of blue jeans that they would ship back to Japan uh, to give to their friends as gifts. But it was such a, a tremendous time, and we got to love, we, we so much enjoyed spending time with these missionaries, learning about the culture and what they were doing. One of those missionaries was a gentleman by the name of Mitch Treesman. I had to ask my dad. I called him up. I said, Dad, there was a missionary that came. What was his name? And, you know, Dad knew right away. Mitch was part of an organization that ministered to people uh, in Israel. Um, the organization's called Friends of Israel. Uh, it's been around since 1938, and it began supporting the spiritual and physical needs of Jewish people whose lives were displaced and tragically affected by the Holocaust. Uh, he came to our church a Sunday night. He set up his little projector, the little pull-up screen. I remember it very clearly. I was 15 or 16 years old. And he began sharing about 
the mission and ministry that he was doing. And Jewish people do not, tip, do not believe that Jesus was the Messiah. And so part of his mission was sharing about how Jesus was the Messiah, and he would share that. And he talked about the struggle of that because Jewish people, and this is what stuck with me, Jewish people, their faith, their work, their nationality, they are so intertwined together. You cannot separate them. And I remember thinking as a 15, 16-year-old, as Mitch talked about their worldview and how they view the world, what's my worldview? How does my faith and who I am impact me on a daily life? Shortly after Terry and I were married, we moved down to the family farm in Stockport, Ohio. This was the first time that Terry and I knew we were going to be someplace together for a while. Terry had just graduated college. We moved from Hartfield back down. And so one of the first things that we did is we're going to go church shopping. Now, in all fairness, we are the worst church shoppers, are we not? We, we typically go to a church, and the first church we go to, we just love it. Um, so the first church that we went to was a, little, was a church in McConnellsville. If you've ever gone to the football field, the old football field down there, it sits on the hill, Trinity United Methodist Church. That was the first church that Terry and I began attending, a uh, younger pastor. Uh, we really connected with their family, and we began attending that church. And as we got closer uh, with the pastor, he came to me and said, Scott, would you like to lead an adult Sunday school class? Now, I was reluctant. Let's be honest. I was young, 20s. There were old people in that group, like 40, 40, 50. I stand before you as a 48-year-old, and I specifically remember that they were older, wiser, had much more experience. I mean, there were, there were teachers, and there were nurses, and there were people that were professionals and worked for AEP, and here I am, you know, I'm this newlywed guy, you know, and, but I decided to take a step of faith, and when we met with the group, and we said, what do you want to talk about? Not only was it I reluctant, they wanted to talk about heavy, deep stuff. They wanted to talk about creation, and evolution, and abortion, and politics, and all of these different things. So Terry and I made the trip, I think, down to Parkersburg. We found a book, and we kind of used that as a guide, and we began going through that class. And what I remember is, man, for a long time I thought I was naive. You know, I grew up thinking that Christians, you know, we're in a room full of people who I believe love Jesus, and we come from all different aspects. We have different views on these topics that I just mentioned. And I thought that, wow, I was just naive. But what, I, what I've come to learn as I've gotten older, maybe a little wiser, is that this is maybe a symptom of a much larger problem. And it's the problem of when we decide to allow our faith to intertwine with our personal life and our work life. We, we let things be separate. So this past week, um, I got to go uh, to a friend's wedding in beautiful Elkins, West Virginia. I don't know if you've ever been to Elkins. It is gorgeous. Um, all around you in the valley are these beautiful mountains. 
And I went down Thursday for the rehearsal, and on Friday evening was the wedding. So Friday morning, I'm in my hotel room, and I just spent some time working on my sermon, reading the Bible, and just kind of putting my finishing touches. And as I was doing that, I was on my computer, and I decided, like, I wanted to find maybe song lyrics. And so I typed in Sunday Morning Christian. And what I got was really what I was looking for. I didn't know it at the time. It's just how God works. Now, Sunday Morning Christian was written by a gentleman by, by the name of Harlan Howard. I'm not sure. Maybe some people know who Harlan Howard is. He is in the Country Music Hall of Fame, and he has written, or had written, he's passed away, over 4,000 songs. That song that he wrote in 1971 called Sunday Morning Christian, by all accounts, I don't believe it was a chart topper. I couldn't find any record that it made like the top charts. That It was redone by somebody in 2010. But I want you to listen to these lyrics. First off, I need to say this, though. These lyrics are about a car salesman. And if you are a car salesman, please do not take that I'm saying anything about car salesmen, okay? Um, I just want us to put ourselves in the position of that car salesman and maybe read these lyrics and see how they convict us and, and what they mean to us. You're a Sunday morning Christian, sir, singing louder than the rest. Beg forgiveness at the altar with your chin down on your chest. But tomorrow will be Monday. You'll revert back to your ways. Gouging, kicking, cheating, shoving with no thoughts of God or loving. Don't let me stand in your way. Surely God will forgive you next Sunday. The lesson here that Mr. Howard is calling out is a problem that we have in our denomination with all Christians. It's our lack of living what Christ has called us to be Monday through Saturday. We come on Sunday, we hear the word, but does it really make a change? When Pastor John and I had a phone conversation a few weeks ago about the sermon, and I was sharing with him what God was laying on my heart, typical John fashion, if you've been around John, he just looked at me and goes, Scott, that'll preach. And I was like, excellent. So I began writing, and I, I kind of hit a point that you often do whenever you write something. I just kind of got to a point like, okay, what do I need? Where do I go from here? And I got on social media, and I'm, you know, just reading through everybody's posts, and I come across a transcript of an interview that was done, and again, I'm not trying to promote anything on Fox News, by a guy by the name of Dr. Jeff Myers. And he was promoting a book that he had just written. Um, it's called Truth Changes Everything. I'll be highlighting this here in a little bit. And in that book, I began to read the transcript and just realized that there were a lot of things that kind of connected to what I wanted to share today. I finished the book about a week ago, and I'm, I'm thankful that you know, God put it in my pathway. Uh, basically, the book talks about in a world that's focused on individual perspectives and social justice, Dr. Myers is stressing the importance not of each person's own truth, but the truth, capital T. Dr. Myers says that through his research that he's done with the Barnum Group, that only 19% of people who attend church on a regular basis have a biblical worldview. Which, wow. So, 
in other words, what he is saying, that two out of ten of us come to church and we, we come to church with this mindset. What does God say and what should I do in response? But the other eight are coming to say, what do I want to do and how does the pastor's, or in this case, Scott's story affirm my truth? So let's look at the two types of truth. The first truth that Michelle has up there is what does God say and what should I do in response? This is truth with a capital T. That baby represented that truth. Jesus on the cross represents that truth. That truth can be known objectively through reason and revelation. It's always existed, even when we weren't looking for it. Now, I've been a believer my entire life. As early as I can remember, Jesus has been a part of my life. But what I've come to realize is when I've dealt with people who found Jesus later in life, they find Jesus. That truth has always been there. Even when they weren't looking for it, Jesus has been there. It exists independently of our ability to perceive it. And we know this because Jesus answered Thomas's question. Thomas didn't know where to go. Jesus was talking about a place. And Thomas is like, Lord, we don't know where, how to go to get to where you're telling us. And Jesus said in John 14, 16, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. By seeking Jesus, we can know the truth in any and every situation. Now, the other one is point number two. What do I want to do and how does the pastor's story affirm my truth? Truth, lowercase, says that truth cannot be known. This is the world that we live in, people. What's your truth? What's your truth? What's your truth? What ends up happening is you have a room full of people with different truths. Sometimes those truths come in direct conflict with each other, but because that person's truth says this, and we, we're, we're told that that truth is their truth. You see, truths are stories that people construct to make sense of their experiences. What happens when we are faced with the possibility that a sermon doesn't affirm our truth? Remember, eight out of ten. So let's talk about a worldview. A worldview is simply a framework that we view reality and make sense. I remember the wonderful two-year-olds, the three that I had in my life. What's a two-year-old's worldview? They're the center of it, right? Right? Give me this, give me that. Constantly entertaining. A secular humanist, they believe that the material world is all that exists. A Buddhist, they believe that you can be liberated from suffering by self-purification. Whether we know it or not, we all have a worldview. And I contend that many Christians today, we, we have a worldview. But we do not have a solid biblical worldview where your faith impacts all parts of your life. So I have four steps to establishing a worldview. That's my first step is establishing. Why should we establish it? Well, I think Romans 12.2 speaks right to it. 
Romans 12, 2 says, do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. Romans 12, 2, Paul urges us to not follow the world's pattern. I.e., you know, an example of that is, that's the worldview. The world's worldview. And to instead be transformed by the renewing of our mind. Seeking out God's will is essential to building a biblical worldview. Second, building that biblical worldview. Ephesians 2, 2, 1 through 2 says, As for you, you were dead in transgressions and sins. We're all dead. We've been dead to our sins and our transgressions in which we used to live in and followed the ways of this world. We followed the ways of this world. And the ruler of the kingdom of air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. The enemy, Satan. A biblical worldview is one in which we allow our heart to be changed toward God and not the world. Rather than your own whims, you follow God's intentions. Ephesians 2, 1 through 2 makes it clear that following the ways of the world is anything but beneficial to us. So we're here seeking a biblical worldview. Colossians 2, 5 says, See it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy. For 2,000 years, it's been believed that truth is known. Here we have in Colossians a warning not to be taken captive by hollow and deceptive philosophy. Truth with a lowercase t which depends on human tradition and an elemental spiritual forces of this world rather than on Christ. One of the best ways that we can do that is we can make a decision to build our biblical Christian worldview. And in order to do that, I have eight points that I want to talk about. And these eight points, Dr. Myers and the Barna Research Group conducted a survey and determined that there are eight key components to a biblical worldview. Eight things that if you have a biblical worldview, these are things that you will have. These are yes or no questions. And so as I read them, I just want you to look at it, and I want you to objectively just think about that. Um, I'm not asking you to come up with the scriptures, but first one, do moral truths exist? Number two, is absolute truth defined by the Bible? Three, did Jesus Christ live a sinless life? Four, is God the all-powerful and all-knowing creator of the universe, and does he still rule it today? Five, is salvation a gift from God that cannot be earned? Six, is Satan real? Seven, does a Christian have a responsibility to share his or her faith in Christ with other people? And eight, is the Bible accurate of all, of its, teach, of all its teachings? Friends, only 9% of people who attend church answer yes to all those questions when, when surveyed. I have heard people that I respect deeply, who I love deeply, who I, I believe Love the Lord who have answered no to some of these. And that's disheartening. There's a myth that 
God created and he stepped back and he's just letting everything happen the way he's happening. Jesus dying on the cross is not something that just happened 2,000 years ago. It is, it is important every moment of every second. I heard someone describe uh, sin and death. How could God do that? How could God let there be sin and death? Well, sin and death is a falling part of our world. Jesus' death on the cross is the way off of that sinking ship. Now, I, I could have went through these. Um, I would have had to spend some time in Scripture to find Scripture to back it up. But each one of those, I, I really believe that I could go through and, and just lay it out. I'm going to lay one out for you. Michelle, could you go back to number three for me? Did Jesus Christ live a sinless life? I believe that is a yes, and I believe that because God's Word says so in Corinthians 5.21, 2 Corinthians 5.21. Paul and Timothy wrote this, Christ had no sin. He was the perfect sacrifice on the cross. He was sinless. He did that because God made him to become sin so that Christ could become, so because of Christ, we could become right with God. I believe that in part of answering these questions is part up to each and every individual in this room to seek out the questions to these. Whether you scan the QR code and you have the notes, whether you have the paper copy, whether you reach out to me and say, Scott, could you give me those eight points again? Um, I believe that that is for every person to come to search and to find to answer those questions. My hope would be is that you would answer yes to each of those. But I believe that that revelation of seeking that is part of developing that biblical worldview. Lastly, securing a Christian worldview, 1 Corinthians 2.12 says, we have, what we have received is not the spirit of this world, thank goodness, but the spirit who is from God, so that we may understand what God has freely given us. Building a solid relationship with Jesus is the best way to help instill a biblical worldview. Having the Holy Spirit offers the guidance needed to live out a solid Christian worldview. Now, in the process of working through this sermon, I'm reminded of two very large companies in our world. They were the first two that I could think of. I know there are lots of others. But I, the first one that I'm going to describe to you, I'm not going to really talk, but I went on their website and I pulled their purpose, their mission statement right from the website. And I want to read it to you. And I'm not going to tell you the company. Many of you are going to know right away as I talk about this company who it is but this is what is directly off their company website. They state this, to glorify God by being a faithful steward of all that is entrusted to us and to have a positive influence on all who come in contact with the name of their company. Now, this company, I'm going to give you a big hint here, is the highest, they have around $17 billion in sales at around 2,700 locations in the United States. They are a privately owned company. They're not traded. They're not public. You can't buy stock in this company. They're family owned. They have the highest sales per location out of all fast food restaurants at $6.1 million per restaurant. Second place is one of, also one of my favorites. Um, there it is Raising Cane's. 
at $4.2 million per location. The restaurant is Chick-fil-A. We are patiently waiting, Chick-fil-A. Come to Zanesville. I will be a very good customer. My family will as well. If you've ever gone past a a Chick-fil-A, if you buy into the myth, oh, the line's too long, it isn't. That line moves super quick, great service. Um, I have literally been in a Chick-fil-A restaurant in Parkersburg, West Virginia, where a family um, stopped to pray, and the owner stopped and prayed right with them. And I think that the Lord blesses that. And, and the fact of the matter, there have been six days a week. They honor a Sabbath. The other company we do have in Zanesville, and I'm going to read, it's Hobby Lobby. And I'm going to read off their worldview right from their website. Just pulled it right off their website. They have five points. I'm going to highlight two of them. The first one they have is honoring the Lord in all we do by operating the company in a manner consistent of biblical principles. Their third or fourth point is providing a return on the family's investment, sharing the Lord's blessings with our employees, and investing in our community. Both restaurants have foundations. They give a lot of money to different organizations that they support that have biblical worldviews, whether it's camps. Um, There may be even companies in here today that are represented by Christian values. I, I, I kind of talked about when I uh, worked and sold insurance in New Lex, I went through car tires a lot, and I always went to Dick Newland, Newland Tire. I don't know that Dick was really ever in there. I didn't know Dick really well. He knows my in-laws, but I always felt when I went in there, I just was treated right, and I knew Dick. I knew that he was a believer, and actually, I, when I mentioned this in first service, he and I were talking about that, and he said it was always important. It wasn't always perfect, but it was always important. And I think that comes back to that, are we living our faith Monday through Saturday? Now, for those of you who don't know, um, I'm a principal, assistant principal at Philo High School. When I went back to school and I began working on my principal licensure, I did that through Indiana Wesleyan, which is a Christian university. And we did a lot of things uh, with Scripture and kind of finding how Scripture and what we believe mesh together as a professional. Now, if you're in education, um, you have probably at some point in time had to write an education philosophy. It's something that teachers, principals have to write. What do you view? How are you going to teach? Looking at standards for educators. And so I had to write an educational philosophy for my principal licensure. Now, I'm going to read to you the first sentence. It's the very first thing in my uh, education philosophy as a principal. Matthew 20, 16, so the last will be first and the first will be last, for many be called but few chosen. There are no education buds words in that first sentence like rigor and differentiation and stakeholders. Educators are laughing because those buzzwords change all the time. But rather, I use the scripture verse because I want that to define me as a leader. You see, I believe that the Lord has called me to be a servant leader. 
uh, last day of school before Christmas break at Philo High School, I, I work with uh, my team and we put on a big event rewarding positive behavior. We get these awesome grants from local companies and we give out over $4,500 worth of items to our students for just being awesome. And after that event gets done, I'm tired, I'm worn out, and there it is, tables and trash. And you know who stays behind to pick it up? Me and my boss, Troy. And, you know, you kind of sit there like, oh, it'd be nice if somebody would stay and help. But then it comes back to this for me. It's what a servant leader would do. Servant leader is the one that stays after the football game and helps the few students cleaning up their section. Servant leader is the one who is going to listen to a staff member who may be going through something that isn't work-related. A servant leader is all about putting others first so that they can be successful. And that is what I try to be as a principal. More than ever, Christ's followers are needed to share the truth, capital T, with the world around us. Each of you is positioned uniquely in your life. That sphere of influence, whether you're retired, whether you're an educator, whether you're a doctor, a lawyer, whether you work at Walmart, whether you work at a fast food restaurant, God has positioned you in your life to have an influence and positive impact on others. Christians have a public relations problem. I cannot tell you how many times I've talked to people and they say, well, I don't go to church because of this, because this Christian did this. Go back to our song. We can't fix what they do, but what we can do is that we can make that that decision to be better, to do better. In Dr. Meyer's book, he shares how Jesus' followers seeking truth changed their world. Just seeking Jesus. If everyone in here just says, I'm going to seek Jesus, we'll make an impact and a change. Um, This book, if you love history, it's great because it goes through and talks about people throughout history who've changed the world. They changed the world in areas like education, which is so important to me. You know, three out of five universities in our country were founded on Christian values by a church. Three out of five. We've gone a long way. We've walked a long way away from the Lord in those places. Healthcare has, was influenced. The bubonic plague, who was saving people when people were dying? Christians. Lots of our churches are named Saint something because of the people who serve the sick and the hurting. Politics, our country, a high majority, like 93% of the people who signed the Declaration of Independence, there are writings of their biblical Christian beliefs. Science, justice, work ethic, and the arts were all influenced by Christians. I want to talk about one of them. This scientist lived from 1822 to 1895. He pioneered the study of molecular asymmetry. He discovered that microorganisms caused fermentation and disease. Remember, if you need a little history lesson, I had to look this up. 
1862 to 1860 or so, okay, 1860 or so, they believed in spontaneous generation. That from nothing, you can get something. How we look back now, that's dumb. This man single-handedly disproved that theory. If you were in science class a long time ago, you had a swan, nest, a swan neck flask. You put something in there, and then you could prove that it takes something else introduced to cause that meat to rot. He came up with pasteurization. He developed vaccines against anthrax and rabies. Prior to his discoveries in science, I already said spontaneous generation, but he subsequently proposed that life only comes from life. Louis Pasteur. His personal life was punctuated by sickness and tragedy. He had three out of five children. Three of his five children died from childhood disease. His sister was left mentally retarded by childhood disease. Rather than crush his spirit, these tragedies spurred him on in his efforts to spare others from the heartbreak of losing their children to disease. His own life was touched by a brain hemorrhage and several strokes that left him partially paralyzed. His condition was often made worse by overwork. Despite his, despite his great contributions to medicine, many doctors and veterinarians at the time strongly opposed him, the very people that should have seen his enormous potential of his work. Through these tri trials, he remained solid in his Christian faith. He didn't do it to benefit from financial gain or prize, even when he was winning medals and honors. He was described as being a person of great simplicity and humility, and his dedication and thoroughness enabled him to make so many wonderful discoveries. Pastor saw no conflict between science and Christianity. I am telling you today that the world of science believes there is a massive conflict between science and Christianity. In fact, Pastor said this, science brings men near to God. In his work as a scientist, he perceived evidence of wisdom and design, not randomness and chaos. And he's also stated this, the more that I study nature, the more I stand amazed at the work of the Creator. He died in 1895 after a long and fruitful life. His contributions to science are truly outstanding. We all benefit from them every single day. His Christian faith sustained him through many trials. He firmly believed in creation and he strongly opposed Darwin's theory of evolution because it did not fit well with scientific evidence. Michelle's gonna put a scripture up there, John 14, 6. I wanna kind of wrap it up with this. I don't want to take too much time. I know we're all probably a little tired from being up late. One of the things that really stood out to me in this book, during Jesus' life, Greek philosophy would have been well-known. By educated people during Jesus' time, Greek philosophers like Plato and Aristotle sought to answer three questions. Now, if you've been a long time since you had philosophy, don't worry, I had to go back and restudy a little bit, read the book, kind of get in touch. But Greek philosophy sought to answer three questions. The first, what is good? What is true? Second. And what is beautiful? What is good? What is true? And what is beautiful? We're talking about seeking truth, finding truth. 
Friends, is there anything more good than Jesus' way? Is there anything more true than Jesus? Nothing else makes sense, trust me. When you sit and you're dealing with students who are going through crisis after crisis after crisis, and what they need is truth, the truth that they are filling themselves with is empty and hopeless. The only truth that really answers is that baby who later would hang on a cross. And is there anything more beautiful than his life? Worship team, if you want to make your way on up, I'm going to, as John says, land this plane. Your, your worldview, biblical worldview, the only thing I would encourage you to do is jot something down. Write something down. Look at those questions. Answer those questions. If you can't answer yes on all those questions, really pray through the ones that you're struggling with. Ask yourself, what is it about that one of those eight questions that you can't answer yes? I would encourage you, if you're looking for a, a, a book to read, I know... I'm not a huge reader. This was one that fell on my lap. I, I bought it on Audible and I read it. I listened to it going to work every morning over the last four or five weeks. Um, I really would encourage you to read Truth Changes Everything. It, it's, it's a really biblically solid read. Um, answer the, so first action step, answer the eight biblical worldview. And lastly, um, I think the prayer team set us up perfectly for this. Spend some time praying, reading scripture, and seek the truth. As a church, we're in a season of a lot of unknown. We're, we're, we're having these talks about disaffiliation next week. The lead team and myself will be up here to answer questions. Um, I'm, I'm pretty open to share that truth is what's more, most important to me. Truth with a capital T. I cannot live in a world where truths with lowercase t's are, are going to continually be accepted and not called out for what they are. People need Jesus. I need more Jesus. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we just thank you as we finish our day. I thank you for people giving their time on New Year's Day to come and to worship and to be with you. Lord, I'm thankful for how you open doors and just provide these great um, opportunities for me to learn and grow. And I know that you want that for each of us. And as I strive to be better, you know, I do fail, but you give me grace and mercy and you love me through it all. Lord, be with us today. Keep us safe. Lord, we love and we worship you. In your name we pray. Amen. So we have a closing song. Uh, during the song, uh, the front is open for prayer you need someone to pray with, our, our prayer team will be here to pray with you. Um, let's stand and let's worship together.